so I just want to start with a bit of a disclaimer uh, this morning. Uh, what we're about to dive into is not what was on the schedule. It's not what we were supposed to talk about. It's not what I was supposed to preach about this week. But as I kind of moved through the week, God kept drawing my heart back to this really obscure story. In fact, if you would have asked me a, a few weeks ago um, about the character that we're going to look at this morning, I'm not even sure I could have even told you very much about him. I didn't know much uh, about the story, but God just kept drawing me to this really kind of obscure moment in, in the scriptures this week because I have this deep sense that God has something specifically, I don't know if it's for one of us or for 10 of us or for all of us, I, I don't know, but I have this sense that God is in the middle of, of trying to do something unique in our church this morning through this really kind of obscure story. And so I just want to kind of invite you on the front end of this to, to lean in to, to, to pay maybe a little more attention, not to what I'm saying, but to, to what God's doing in the scriptures, because I have a sense that God has something unique uh, for our church family in this season through this kind of unusual story um, that we're gonna look at. And so uh, I remember several years ago, I had the opportunity uh, to sit down uh, with a guy that's become a really good friend of mine. He's just an amazing leader. God's used him in some remarkable ways. But I, at, at the moment, I didn't really know him. And so we sat down and we we're having this dinner together and I remember I was kind of looking at his life and his leadership, and I was just kind of peppering him with questions. And essentially, I was trying to ask him, I said, hey, would you tell me the story behind the story of your life? Because we kind of all know that to be true, right? Like, anytime you see something great, you always know there's a story behind the story, or maybe a thousand stories behind the story. And so I'm, I'm sitting with this guy who I just respected as a leader, and I'm like, man, what's the story behind the story? And I, I'm not exactly sure what I expected him to tell me. I think I expected him to talk to me about, you know, the grad school he went to or the professor that mentored him or the door that God opened suddenly and he stepped in it, into it. And, and the truth be told, all of those things are part of his life at some, at some moment. But I'm sitting there having this conversation. And he says, if you want to understand me, he says, you've got to understand my, my dad. And he starts telling me this story about his dad, who was this, this blue collar, middle class factory worker. His whole life, he, he worked the same factory job for 40-something years. He talked about watching his dad work that job and then come home and watch the way that his dad loved his mom, just so faithful to like one wife over 60 years. He talked about watching the way that his, his dad loved his two older sisters uh, who were both uh, um, struggling with uh, disabilities and had all sorts of special needs and things that they needed help with. And I'm sitting there at this table with this unbelievable leader that God's used to do so many amazing things. He said, if, if you want to understand the big things that God has done in my life, you have to understand all the moments of small faithfulness that started with my dad. All these moments of uncelebrated, of unnoticed, of unrecognized faith. He told me about his dad's funeral. He said, people shared about my dad's funeral. He said, not very many because nobody knew him. And nobody really knew what he did. He says, but he says, every time I look at my dad, I'm reminded that God delights in doing big things through people that are faithful in small things. That God loves to do the big in the lives of those who are willing to lean in faithfully with the small. I kept thinking about that this week and there's this kind of obscure passage in Zechariah chapter four, verse 10. It goes like this, it says, do not despise the small beginnings for the Lord delights to see the work begin. It says, do not despise the small beginnings for the Lord delights to see the work begin. And I was, I was thinking about that. I go, man, that's such a counterintuitive reality in our culture because we've been trained to despise the small beginnings. We live in a culture 
that loves the big moments, the big finishes, the big shots, the big celebrations, the big goals. You know, I was, I was thinking about that uh, this summer as I was watching the NBA Finals. And I don't care what you think about him, LeBron James, one of the greatest athletes of all time that people just love to hate on. I don't get it. That's a conversation for another day, but he's there in the finals and he has one of the greatest performances ever, even though his team loses. And I thought, man, behind that amazing performance at some point was a small beginning. I wonder what it would have been like to have been at that family barbecue when he was two years old and someone rolled him a basketball. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Like if you could just pause time and go, this will change the way the game is played. Just crazy, small beginning behind a big moment. Or what it would have been like to have been in that high school classroom after hours when someone introduced Steve Jobs to writing code and say, man, this kid is gonna change the way that we, we view the world as we know it. Or think about one of the most powerful ministries right here in the city, right? It's right across the street from us, Room in the Inn. I don't know if you know much about Room in the Inn, but years ago, there's a priest here in Nashville Father Charles Strobel walked out the back door of the parish that he was serving. There's a a homeless guy who was hungry. And he goes back in and he makes a peanut butter sandwich. And the peanut butter sandwich would become the launching pad of this unbelievable, unbelievable ministry. I look at his life and I go, man, God has done all of these big things, but these big things so often begin in the smallest, most unnoticed most uncelebrated, unrecognized kind of places. And God says, do not begin, do not despise the day of small beginnings for the Lord delights. The Lord delights to see the work begin. And all week long as I was trying to prepare the sermon that I was supposed to preach this morning, I kept thinking about you and your faces in a non-creepy way, but I, I just kept thinking about you and praying for you. And I'm going, God, I sense that you're trying to do something in our church. God, I sense that you're trying to do something in our city right now. I was at a prayer meeting this week with pastors from all denominations all across the city. We're we're praying in this room, and at the end of this prayer meeting, this guy stands up that I never met. He says, 15 years ago, a prophet came through Nashville, and he prophesied that a spiritual shot would go out that would be heard around the world, and that that shot would ring out from Nashville, Tennessee. This pastor stood up and he says, I believe the time is now that God is raising up something in the city. I go, we're living in this unique moment in our city right now where everything is up and to the right. The economy is up and to the right. Our social status in the world is up and to the right. And yet the spiritual reality of so much of our city is not following that same trajectory. And I go, but it's for such a time as this. And all week long, I just kept thinking about this reality of a God that delights in doing big things to people that are willing to be faithful in small areas. And I've been wondering if we as a church have the eyes and the ability to see what it is that God's up to. You know, I'm convinced, like as I was praying this week, I kept thinking, I'm like, I bet you there's a seventh grade girl in our church who God is gonna use to change the world. But we can only see her as a seventh grade girl. I go, I, I believe there are people in our midst, maybe they are back in the nursery right now, getting their diaper changed, biting someone else's kid, and you're gonna have to deal with it later. <laughs> but before you're too hard on them, man, God delights, not in biting kids, but in using small things to bring about the most magnificent revolutions. And all week long, I've just been sensing, I've just been sensing 
that God is stirring up something in our midst. The question is, do we have the eyes to see it? Because this is how God has always been. You know, you can follow this trajectory all through scripture. One of my favorite stories in scripture is the story of Abraham and kind of his trajectory. I don't know if you know of Abraham. But in Genesis 12, like we meet Abraham and he's a 75 year old guy living with his wife in his parents' basement. They don't have kids. We don't really know much about him, but God shows up to Abraham on just an ordinary day and God says, I wanna make you a promise. And I want you to hear the promise that God makes to Abraham. He says, first off, I know you don't have any kids, but here's what I'm gonna do for you. You are gonna have more descendants than the ocean has sand. Now, I'm not an economics major, that's a lot of descendants. And I, I don't know what Abraham would have been feeling in that moment, but I go, man, that's a huge promise. He's like, I'm 75 years old. I know how this works. I gotta get the ball rolling on this. Huge promise. But God doesn't stop with, with that huge promise of descendants. He looks at Abraham and he says, not only am I gonna give you descendants, I'm gonna give you land. And man, I don't know what Abraham was thinking. Maybe Abraham was thinking, okay, maybe I'm gonna get a condo. Maybe we're gonna get an acre out of Leaper's Fork. I don't know what it's gonna be. You know, God says, no, I'm gonna give you an entire country. I'm gonna give you an entire country. So this guy who was living with his dad, who had no kids, now has been promised the multitudes, has now been promised an entire country. And God says, but I wanna end. I'm just gonna give you more than you can imagine. He says, your family is gonna become the family that all the nations of the earth are blessed through. Now, I don't know what the best day of your life has ever been. That's a pretty good day for Abraham. Can you imagine he comes home from work on that Tuesday, whatever it is that he did? And Sarah's like, hey, how was your day? It's, it's pretty good. Anything unusual? Well, I heard from the living God of all creation. Wow. Tell me about that. What did he say? We well, he said he's going to give his descendants and he's going to give his land and we're going to be a blessing to everyone that sets foot on the face of the earth. Man, what a day that was. But if you follow the scriptures, that promise, it takes a pretty circuitous path. And I don't know if you ever noticed this before, but God so rarely draws a straight line from where you are and where you wanna be. It's just this winding and all of a sudden that path, that promise is gonna take a path through Egypt. It's gonna get stuck there for a few hundred years. It's gonna take a path through the desert, through rebellion and through famine and through heartache, through faithfulness, through victory, through failure and all of this. And you get to the beginning of the book of Judges, where we're gonna start this morning. And this promise is gonna be picked up in the life of a guy named Joshua, who God had entrusted to keep stewarding the promise that he had given to Abraham years before. And I want you to listen to these words. Judges chapter two, it's gonna be on the screen if you don't have this. It says, after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each of their own inheritance. So Joshua, this great leader, that God had raised up to steward this promise that had had its beginning in a very small, obscure, uncelebrated moment in the life of Abraham. Joshua is bringing this promise into existence. Listen to this. He says, he tells the people to each go take their inheritance. Verse seven, so the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, who had seen all the great things that the Lord God had done for Israel. And so there's this moment at the beginning of Judges. Here's what you need to know if you've never read the book. You come to the beginning of Judges and the people have finally arrived. They finally stepped into the thing that people have been waiting for for hundreds of years. Have you ever noticed that there is an extra measure of joy that comes when you step into something you've been hoping for 
when it comes on the other end of waiting. Like you think about this on a really small level. Like if you've ever tried to eat dinner in 12 South on a Saturday night, like, like so you know where I'm going with this, right? You, you go into the restaurant, it's like, how long, how long must I wait, oh Lord? And they're like, well, it'll be about seven hours. <laughs> but because you put on your favorite shirt, you're gonna stay there because you want people to see it. And that's why you go to 12 South in the first place. And so you're there, and have you ever noticed how much better the food tastes if you've waited? <laughs> like you wait, and all of a sudden you step into that thing that you've waited for, and it's, it's like, man, it's gratifying. I, I remember with Sydney, she and I, we dated for five years, which is a long time to date, and at that time it felt so long. But I remember like pretty shortly after I met her, I thought, man, this is probably gonna be the girl that I'm gonna marry. And it felt like forever, like this, this wedding would never come. And I remember sitting in the, the little dressing room right behind the stage of the place where we'd get married. And I remember sitting there on my wedding day going, man, this day that I've waited for forever, it's, it's finally here. It's finally here. And all this like joy and all this gratification that came in. And we could all go around the room. There, there are these things, right, that, that you've waited for. But I go, the people of God had been waiting for hundreds of years. For God to do that which he had promised, and all of a sudden, they have stepped through the curtain of waiting into the place of joy and promise. They are there in the land. They're exactly where God told Abraham that they would be. And if you know the rest of the story, the honeymoon doesn't last very long, though, does it? <laughs> they step into the promise, jump down to verse 8. I mean, they make it like two verses. They make it like two verses before they screw it up. It says, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, he died at the age of 110, had a pretty good run there, 110 years. They buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnah, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. This is a verse that just was crawling all over me this week. It says, and after that whole generation who had been with them, coming to the promise, and after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors after they had died, another generation grew up, listen to this, who neither knew the Lord or what the Lord had done for Israel. So then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the people all around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served him. Jump back to verse 10. I want you to see this. After the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord or what he had done, and so they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Just thinking about that this week, I was like, man... They wait and they wait and they wait and they wait and they finally get the thing that they waited for. And what do they do? I go, they forget. And they screw it all up. And I'm going, how do you do that? I go, how do you do that? How do you mess it up? And I go, do you know why they did that? Do you know how they did that? Because they're people. And people forget. People forget. We are so forgetful. And our forgetfulness so often is the foundation of our faithlessness. They forgot what God had done. And it became the foundation of their rebellion against the Lord. This week, I was just challenged by that. I was cleaning off the hard drive on my computer, trying to make some space on it. It's this old computer. And so I'm trying to take pictures off and put it on this external hard drive. And I see these pictures of my kids from right after they were born, and I literally had this passing thought, man, I forgot that Micah used to look like that. Have you ever had one of those moments 
Or you see an old picture and you're like, oh, I forgot they look like that. Or I forgot that I looked like that. And then you're instantly depressed. You know, it's like, I forgot I used to look like that. You know, you forget, we forget things so easily. And I go, humanity, and if you tune me out, listen back in. Humanity, we have made a sport out of forgetting the faithfulness of God towards us. And it's not just the people of the scriptures, it's us in our own city. Last Saturday night, I was uh, downtown. And if you need to be reminded of just how much work is still left to be done in the city, go hang out on Broadway on a Saturday night, seriously. And I'm down there last Saturday night and, and I'm reminded of what took place in our city just a little over a generation ago. It's about 100 years ago, like right down two blocks from where we are right here and right now. So, you know, I don't know if you know much about the history of the place that we're at, but about 100 years ago, just two blocks from here, um, Broadway was, it was a place known for decadence and debauchery. Shocker, I know. But that's what it was known for. And, and during those days, it wasn't known for pedal taverns. Like they hadn't, they hadn't experienced pedal taverns and bachelorette parties. And like, that's not what uh, Broadway was known for. It was known for these, these riverboat cruises, uh, these kind of floating casinos and strip clubs and bars and taverns. And uh, there's a guy that owned 35 of those right here outside of Nashville. His name was Tom Ryman. He was 30, uh, 43 years old. He owned 35 of these kind of floating casino pubs, strip clubs, just a lot of decadence that he was making money off of. It was about during that time, about 100 years ago, that there was a former alcoholic, a guy that had uh, almost killed himself because he drank so much, named Sam Jones. He's living in North Georgia. And uh, his, as his dad was passing away, he calls Sam in and he says, Sam, I've spent my whole adult life worrying about you. He says, will you make me a promise that one day I'll see you in heaven? And that simple conversation with Sam, who is in the middle of his alcoholism, turned him upside down. He gives his life to Jesus. He becomes this revivalist. A few years later, he shows up on the corner of 8th Avenue and Broadway, two blocks from here. Shows up on 8th Avenue and Broadway, and he sets up a tent that seats 5,000 people, and three times a day for four straight weeks, he preaches the gospel to people who are in the middle of decadence. In that four-week period, 100 years ago, here in Nashville, Tennessee, that four-week period, 25% of the entire residential population of Nashville came to Christ. Can you imagine that? Like over a month, like in our context, that'd be like in a month, 250,000 people coming to the Lord? Just insane. During one of those evening revival meetings, Tom Ryman shows up. This guy who was confused by the fact that his business was beginning to decline by this rapid revival that's taking place. And he and his family come to the Lord that night and he goes up to Sam Jones and he says, hey, right now you're preaching in tents. People can't even fit in the tent. But next time you come through town, there's gonna be a building that we're gonna meet in. It's a Ryman Auditorium where we've worshiped, where we've been as a church. And for the next 15 years, this guy that used to lead the debauchery on Broadway was leading the revival. I was walking down Broadway last Saturday night and it doesn't feel like the place where heaven and earth are colliding anymore. And if I'm being honest, I don't even know if my heart and my faith is big enough to believe that it could be the place. But boy, I want to believe. Do you want to believe? And I go, but how quickly we forget that just a generation ago, 
that God was doing something so big, two blocks from the very place we're sitting right now, that a tent made for 5,000 couldn't hold it. They forgot. They stepped into the promise, and then they forgot. And they spend 400 years in their forgetfulness. Flip all the way to the end of the book of Judges. You get all the way to the end, and it sums up what's taken place. 400 years of forgetfulness. The last words of the book of Judges, in verse 25, it says this. It says, in those days, Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Israel had no king and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. I don't know if there's another verse in all the Bible that more accurately depicts the cultural moment we find ourselves in right now than that verse. We live in a moment where everyone has deemed themselves their own moral compass. And everybody, if it feels right, it is right. If it looks right, it must be right. And this was the story in Israel. God had said to Abraham, in this moment of small beginnings, he says, I've got a big promise. But you gotta be faithful in the small, and they walk it all out, they get all the way into the promised land. They forget the faithfulness of God, and they forfeit the blessing, and for 400 years, they're walking in this place of spiritual apathy and moral decay. Now, if the story stopped here, it'd be so depressing. <laughs> but do you know that this isn't the end of the story, right? It's not the end of the story. And you get to the very next part of the story, the book of Ruth that comes after Judges, it actually takes place during the book of Judges. So the very next part of the story picks up in 1 Samuel chapter one. Flip over there, 1 Samuel chapter one. And this is the obscure moment. All of that buildup, all of that is for this. This is an obscure thing that I'd never noticed before. Look at this, 1 Samuel chapter one, it says, but in the middle of this spiritual apathy, in the middle of this forgetfulness, in the middle of this spiritual decay, there was a man named Elkanah. There was a man named Elkanah. Now, I don't know if any of you know who Elkanah is. I barely knew who Elkanah was. This random guy, listen to this. There was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah, in the region of Zuf, in the hill country of Ephraim. He's the son of Jehoram, son of Elilu, son of Tohu. All these weird names. I don't know how to pronounce them either. I'm not even gonna pretend, okay? But, but there's this guy named Elkanah. And the story's been building to this. The story of scripture's been building to this. Hey, God's made this promise. The people have taken the promise. They've forfeited the promise. Everyone's doing their own thing. Everyone's rocking the pedal taverns. Everyone's forgotten the faithfulness of God. But you get to 1 Samuel chapter one. He says, but there was a man named Elkanah. In the middle of all the apathy, in the middle of all the rebellion, there was a man named Elkanah. And you keep reading, and his wife, Hannah, and they're in, this middle, they're in the middle of this moment of personal disappointment and heartbreak. But look at verse three. It says, and each year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord. And I'm not, I'm not sure why, but this was the verse that went off like a bomb in my heart for our church this week. Is that in the middle of all of the apathy in the middle of all of the spiritual decline, in the middle of all of the forgetfulness, there was a man and his wife 
who were willing to be faithful in the small. They were willing to be diligent in the place where nobody else was watching. In the middle of all of the decline, they, they kept bringing their family to the temple. They kept coming into the presence of the Lord. They kept seeking the heart of God. And God would use their small faithfulness to bring about an unbelievable change in a nation that had been on a 400-year trajectory of decline. It would be out of this small act of faith that God would give them a little kid named Samuel. And Samuel would be the one to bring the nation back to God. I just kept thinking about our church. I kept thinking about you. I kept thinking about what's going on in the city. I mean, I'm, I'm convinced that we are living in a moment when God is up to something big. But I believe that the, the big stuff that God is up to always begins in the small, unnoticed, unrecognizable places. That there's some of you in this room and your moms and you've got preschool kids and there may be nothing feels spiritual about raising preschool kids for you right now. It's exhausting and you are making meals and you're wiping their bottoms and you're changing their diapers and you're punishing them and you are doing all of the things that you are like just trying so hard. You're trying so hard to scrape by. And I go, man, do you know God's in all of that? And that God turns nations around. He turns nations around with small acts of faith in the unseen places. Think about the middle schoolers in our church who feel like outsiders, scared to death to go back to school on Tuesday. You have no idea. I mean, you have no idea what God sees in you. And that God delights in doing big things in small beginnings, in the small acts of faithfulness. Think about the husbands in here whose wives aren't yet walking faithfully with the Lord, or whose wives in here, whose husbands aren't yet walking faithfully with the Lord. And every Saturday night, you're trying, you're praying, you're asking, you keep showing up alone, you keep walking alone, you keep walking alone, you keep trying, I go, man, don't give up. Because God delights, God delights in the small beginnings. Think about those of you that are employees, and right now you're working under a tyrannical boss and you're going, how do I honor someone that doesn't deserve honor? I go, God delights in those small beginnings of faithfulness, small acts of faithfulness. Think about those, those of you that are single and you're trying to date in a way that is godly in a culture that, that treats sex as currency. I go, man, God delights in the small faithfulness of someone that chooses to swim upstream from a culture that says this is the only way to find love. I think about the dreams that God's putting in your hearts. I think about the things that God is stirring up. Like, I mean, do not despise the day of small beginnings because the Lord delights. And so often those small beginnings, they feel as slow and as unnoticed and as painful as a guy with a name like Elkanah dragging his family to the temple year after year, week after week, month after month, day after day. All of those prayers that you're praying on your couch at six in the morning that feel like they're unanswered, God's there. All of those choices to do what's right, even when it feels like it's punishing you, 
God's there. And I believe the big work that God is doing so often begins in the small places. Here, here, here's my heart in this, guys. Like, I mean, does God love using Abraham's and Moses's and Sarah's and Esther's? Of course he does. But I believe a lot of times God's just looking for some more Hannah's and some more Elkanah's. Some more people that will show up for duty, who will be faithful when no one's looking, and who will trust that God will be in all the details. I go, this is the way that God has always operated. When God was looking to redeem the world, he didn't send a delegation or a leader to Rome. He sent his son to be born to an unwed refugee teenage woman who was living in a town smaller than your high school graduating class. And what would it have been like for 30 years for people to walk by Jesus as he's getting his diapers changed, as he's learning to walk, as he's getting his first job, as he's being rejected from the temple. Like, what would it have been like? No one walked by Jesus and went, man, that's God's plan for changing the world. And yet the big things of God begin in the smallest places. I go, the question is, do we have the eyes to see it? You know, right now, some of you, that, that thing that's happening in your heart right now that's the small beginning of the Spirit of God awakening you to the things that he has in store for you. But I promise you, the path from his promise made to the promise kept will very rarely go in the straight line that you hope it'll go in. And it's there in the in-between where we find ourselves kind of like, like wrestling this thing to the ground that God does all of his best work. And so this morning, before we go to communion, before we uh, get back up and worship, I wanna give us some space to get in groups and to talk and pray in groups of two or three of the people around you. There's gonna be one question up on the screen. Here's a question that I want you to pray about and talk about in groups. This is for you to answer with somebody. Where is God? Where is God inviting you to be faithful in the small and the unseen and the uncelebrated areas of your life? Like where is God inviting you to more deeply adventure into the hidden places? Because I believe that when God finds a group of people that are willing to be faithful in the small, God can do bigger things than you could ever ask or imagine, even if you never see it. I don't think Elkanah ever saw what his son, what became of his son. But God was in the middle of it all. So let's get in groups right now. I wanna give you some time to pray, to talk, to wrestle with this question. Then in a few minutes, I'm gonna get up and I'll send this to communion. I'll pray over you as you get in groups. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your faithfulness to us in all of the small things of life. And God, I'd ask that you would just help us this morning to see and to acknowledge and to recognize what it is that you're up to right here in our midst. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray and give thanks. Amen.